Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 62 of Inside AgriTurf. Thank you for joining me. There are no guests this episode. I've been involved this week in some re-engineering of some delicate metalwork that uh, comprising my knees, which required some uh, procedures in hospital. Anyway, a little time for reflection, I thought. I do hope you enjoyed the three recent AgriTurf Talks episodes with panels drawn from across the industry, where we addressed the challenges of recruitment, agricultural engineering and the environment, and the future for the dealership. All three different topics, which of course are all interrelated to day-to-day business. But of course, at the moment, all of our attention is focused on the events in Ukraine, which seem to take a more dangerous and sinister form every day. And for which, as I record this, there are more questions than answers about the possible endgame. However, if I may, as a prelude to the remarks about the present conflict, let me take you back to a close encounter with the way the Russian state operates. I have spent pretty well all my life living and working in the historic British Cathedral city of Salisbury. I went to Salisbury Cathedral School. Brooke grew up in the city, worked here, met my wife of 56 years when she was a nurse here, and my father was the 704th Mayor of Salisbury in 1966. It's a a quiet backwater of some 40,000 people and lies on the edge of Salisbury Plain, a few miles from Stonehenge, and in the heart of Wiltshire farming land. The local economy is based largely around agriculture and tourism, And so the last thing on the minds of the businesses and citizens of Salisbury in March 2018 was that foreign agents, identified later as Russian, would come to our city carrying one of the world's deadliest nerve agents, Novichok. Their aim, it appears, was to hunt down and almost certainly kill a former KGB military intelligence officer, Sergei Skripal, who had chosen to live somewhat incongruously in this quiet community. The potion was smeared on his home door handle, which affected Skripal, his daughter Yulia, and the first police officer on the scene, Nick Bailey. All three were seriously contaminated and spent many weeks in intensive care. All recovered, fortunately, since when the Scripples have disappeared into obscurity whilst Nick Bailey, who was badly affected, has had to retire from the police force. For months, nobody knew whether the poison was still at large, and if so, where. For weeks, yellow hazmat suits were more common than wax jackets in and around Salisbury. Fear gripped the city, People were afraid to go out, afraid to touch anything for several months. And then a fake perfume bottle was found in a park by a local man, Charlie Rowley, who took it home to his partner, Dawn Sturgis. Days later, both were found collapsed at home. It was the 30th of June 2018, almost four months after the poisoning of the Scripples. Unfortunately, Dawn Sturgis died in Salisbury District Hospital from Novichuk poisoning a week later. And her partner, Charlie, did recover, but has since had some complications. Had that bottle been retrieved by a child or a dog or got into the adjacent river, who knows the consequences? 
But the impact for that summer of 2018 was that Salisbury was virtually shut down. The annual influx of tourists stayed away in their droves and local businesses suffered. The Russian agents spent less than three days in the UK, travelling under assumed names, but were later identified as high-ranking colonels in the GUR, Russia's military intelligence agency. And now, Salisbury will forever be known as the British city where Russia deployed a deadly nerve agent. And had that poison got loosed? Well, it doesn't bear thinking about So, in fact, shutdown came to Salisbury a year before the pandemic struck, and we were hit by a double whammy, this time, of course, with national and worldwide consequences. And now, as the impact of COVID starts to recede and lost ground is starting to be recovered, a potentially more serious threat to business and to life in general... Who knows exactly what the knock-on effect of the Russian invasion will have on international trade, energy and food supplies, and the cost of, well, cost of everything, really. And what about the impact on our industry? Russia and the Ukraine are major grain-producing regions exporting across the world. Russia itself has over 220 million hectares of fertile land, which is almost 10% of the world's arable land, of which it is calculated that only 13% is cultivated. Ukraine itself is blessed with large tracts of genosum, that wonderful fertile black soil rich in humus and minerals. However, for years, particularly in Russia, there has been insufficient machine capability and modern technology to maximise the harvest. Virtually all the Western tractor and farm machinery manufacturers have joint ventures in Russia, which they have viewed as a huge market of opportunity in the past, despite the logistical problems of serving such a wide region. Here's what uh, John Deere CEO Samuel Allen said in 2011. I think John Deere has the opportunity to help uh, Russia in a number of ways, but in particular, first is technology. Advanced technology is the key to meeting the world's rapidly growing demand for renewable resources such as agricultural commodities, and we can have a major impact on that. You know, the combine we're producing today in Domodedovo can in one day harvest enough wheat to produce one million half-kilo loaves of bread. And that's the type of technology that Russia needs for the Russian farmers to become very, very competitive on the world market. A couple of years ago, the organisers of one of the major farm machinery shows in Russia, Ugagro, scheduled to be staged in the southern city of Krasnodar in November 2022, said that there is a $1.2 billion market potential waiting to be filled in Russia. And in its pitch to exhibitors, it quotes former Russian agriculture minister Alexander Kachev as saying, Russia requires at least 180,000 new tractors and 80,000 combines to fill the gaps in our total machinery pool. Just let's hang that in the air for a moment. 180,000 new tractors and 80,000 combines. It goes on to say that Russian tractor fleet has shrunk by 51% over the past decade, harvesters by 50% and seeding equipment by 52%. 
Currently, the biggest machinery supplier into the Russian market is Germany, with sales into the country totaling $413 million, followed by Netherlands at $230 million. The US contributes and sells $79 million worth and China $58 million. Russia imports around 40% of the tractors and farm machinery it requires, but the production of agricultural machinery in Russia has increased threefold from 2013 to 2019, according to the Russian Agricultural Machinery Trade Association, and now represents 58% of sales, presumably due to the presence of Western manufacturers. It also says that exports rose by 30% in 2020 compared with 2019, but put into context, that represents sales of just 534 tractors, most of which would have been shipped mainly to the nine members of the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, such as Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Moldova, etc. However, today... The prospects look very different since widespread sanctions have been announced. Most international manufacturers have announced withdrawing their shipments into Russia and Belarus as a result of Russia waging war on Ukraine, an independent nation. To date, that includes John Deere, CNH, Agco, Kubota, JCB and Lely, uh, but we've heard nothing yet officially from Class, who have one of the biggest investments in the Russian market. So what is the involvement of the major tractor and farm machinery brands in Russia? The Class appear to have one of the biggest stakes and were the first large-scale manufacturer to establish production facilities in Russia. In 2005, the company built a modern state-of-the-art factory at Krasnodar with the initial aim of building 1,000 harvesting machines a year. In 2015, the company invested a further 120 million euros on extending the production facilities and a further 2.5 million euros in 2020 on further enhancing the factory, which employs around 700 people. It built combines under the Tucano brand, which is officially classified as a Russian-made product. And it also assembles Axion and Xeron tractor models, many using British-built Cummins engines. As for John Deere, in 2010, the company invested more than $100 million building a new factory at 37 kilometres south of Moscow in order to make agricultural, construction and forestry equipment. Prior to that, Deere had shipped products into Russia, but in 2008, Russian farmers were denied finance to buy machines built outside Russia, which Deere said caused an 80% drop in sales in the country and which almost certainly prompted them and others to set up facilities in the country. Deere is also a production facility in Orenburg, manufacturing drills and tillage equipment. Meanwhile, also in 2010, CNH Industrial entered into a joint venture with Russian truck and vehicle manufacturer Kamaz and invested $70 million dollars to build New Holland tractors and combines at a plant in Tatarstan, a thousand miles east of Moscow. Covering 45,000 square metres, the plant was designed to produce 5,000 units a year. 
Kamaz is principally owned by state-owned corporation Rostec and includes a 15% stake by Daimler, who have since withdrawn their cooperation over the invasion of Ukraine. Rostec, Russia's largest defence company, is on the banned list put in place by the UK, the EU and US. As for Agco... In 2013, the company announced a 50-50 joint venture with the company Russian Machines Corporation, part of the Basic Element Group, saying that it would invest $100 million over the following three years, establishing a manufacturing facility near Moscow comprising 27,000 square metres of production facilities, product showroom and training centre. The deal also included the creation of a model farm to showcase full-cycle agricultural solutions. A Russian Machines operates 27 manufacturing plants across Russia, producing motor vehicles, aircraft, railway rolling stock, construction equipment, as well as agricultural machinery. The parent company, Basic Element, is one of the largest diversified industrial groups in Russia and was founded in 1997 by Oleg Deripaska, one of the high-profile Russian businessmen recently sanctioned by the UK, but not, it appears yet, by the EU. So, what happens now? All of these four major companies and others are embedded in Russia to a significant degree. They have invested huge sums on manufacturing support infrastructure over the past 10 to 15 years. Presumably, the tap cannot be turned on now easily to feed the supply lines with components, not to mention supporting products already in the field, with spare parts and backup service at a time when we are right at the start of the growing season. Lely have already said that they will continue to supply backup to their milking machinery in Russia because of the risk to animal health. But as everybody knows, efficient machinery is only as good as a support service. It's all right companies such as Coca-Cola, Starbucks and McDonald's hoarding business in Russia. It's much more straightforward for them. A McDonald's double Big Mac doesn't need much in the way of service or spare parts backup. And what about homegrown machinery in Russia? There are two or three manufacturers of tractors in Russia, notably Rostomash and the St. Petersburg tractor plant. But volume is low compared with demand and, of course, there is the Belarus tractor plant, but that country is also subject to sanctions. Now, as for Ukraine, the country is the fifth largest grain exporter and together with Russia accounts for 29% of international sales, but it relies heavily on imported machinery. Its major tractor factory, the Kharkiv tractor plant, has been bombed and destroyed. Founded in 1930, the plant has produced over 2.5 million tractors in the past, but production significantly dropped in the 2000s, and the company was rescued from liquidation by a local investor in 2016. Since when, it has manufactured a wide range of components, as well as limited tractor production. That said, according to a Czech machinery website, Ukraine reportedly produced just over 800 tractors in 2020, compared with over 3,000 in 2017. 
The country has been a valuable market for good-use second-hand tractors and combines, many of which came from the UK, as was confirmed in the last episode of Inside AgriTurf by John Deere dealer James Tuckwell, who acknowledged the importance of the Ukraine for good-use tractors, and by Howard Pullen, former Bagma president and second-hand machinery supplier, who said that Ukraine was one of his best customers, particularly for class combines. The challenge of getting machinery and equipment to Ukraine for this year's harvest looks daunting. How crops can be sown, fed and harvested safely in the present warlike conditions is the biggest question. But a Ukrainian farmer named as Oleg Chermash, who grows wheat, sunflower and rapeseed on 3,500 acres in the southern Ukraine, told the Sunday Times only this week, Today I'm farming wheat. Tomorrow I might be shooting Russians. He added that he thought only half of the usual 30 million tonnes of wheat would be harvested this year, and the majority of which would go for home consumption, because the ports are closed. There's not going to be a famine in Ukraine, he said, but I'm not sure that we can export anything. And he has already converted his truck in order to mount a machine gun. However, Uncertain supplies of fertiliser and diesel may well hamper the efforts of Chumak and his fellow farmers. Everything, of course, will depend on the outcome and timing of present hostilities. I'm sure all the international manufacturers and machinery suppliers will be eager to pile into Ukraine with support as soon as they are able. But when? That is the question. The Western world's major manufacturers are in a real bind. They have the machinery, they have the technology, they have the infrastructure already in place in Russia, but as things stand, they will be unable to help support the Russian farming community again for a long time. It will be frustrating, for I will end this section by quoting from that sales pitch by the organisers of the UAGRO Agricultural Show scheduled for next November. It said, Russia is investing in new machinery at an incredible rate. But we also know that there exists a huge deficit in machinery pools across our nation. Our market is wide open to important, cutting-edge modern machinery. Our show provides the platform for foreign manufacturers to get their products and solutions into the hands of Russian farmers. As things stand, that looks a very bleak prospect. Western manufacturers recognised the potential of the Russian market after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s. And early in the 2000s they acted, they invested, they supported and they cooperated. They brought cutting-edge technology to Russia's agricultural community, all of which has now come to a shuddering halt and is unlikely to be restored any time soon. You can only feel sympathy for the Russian farmers, their families and all those who are eager to ramp up agricultural output. We hear so much more in the media about energy supply, but too little about the other sustainer of life, food. Will sanction hold? Will there be a tipping point? As I said at the outset, there are far too many more questions than answers. The pictures coming out of Ukraine are heart-wrenching, but the spirit of its citizens is simply astounding. They are a proud nation. They are a proud farming nation. Let's hope that they can get back to that that they do really well. Slava Ukraini.
Glory to Ukraine. So let's be parochial for a moment. What about food production here in the UK? What will be the impact on our industry? Moreover, what can we as an industry do to assist in feeding the nation? We already know that farm costs are going to rocket. Fertiliser prices are already going through the roof from £300 a tonne to four figures to £1,000 a tonne, it appears. And the availability of diesel may well come under threat. All at a time, of course, when machine and component production are already strained following the hiatus caused by the pandemic. I'm not sure that we really know yet the extent of the issues we are going to face this year. But I do wonder whether we can draw lessons from the First and Second World War. At the end of the First World War in 1918, there were just 6,000 tractors in use in Britain and the ploughing up campaign of 1917 resulted in an extra 2.5 million acres being used to grow cereals. At the start of the Second World War in 1939, there were many working horses on farms, but there were now 56,000 tractors in use, which rose to over 100,000 by 1940. Arable land covered about 9 million acres, and in the first two years of the war, further 4 million acres were ploughed up to boost food production, particularly in the eastern counties, where thousands of acres of Finland were drained to create fertile farming land. Now, currently, all the media talk is of reducing our reliance on imported energy. But what about reducing our reliance on imported food? I wonder, could we see a farming war effort three in 2022? So much has changed, of course, over the course of the past 77 years. Manpower for a start. Many of the men were away fighting in the war. Today, machinery size and technology is far, far advanced. We've even got robots coming on stream. But today, we also have to face up to considering our food self-sufficiency and also the price of food. I have been here before. In 2008, we saw astonishing food price rises. In the 12 months to March 2008, wheat prices rose by 130%. The latest figures suggest that UK farmers and growers produce 64% of the food eaten in Britain, compared with 78% in 1984. And there are many other factors that feed into this today. Food waste, for a start. RAP calculate that over 40% of the food we buy and consume is wasted. And topically are the environmental pressures. Livestock farming is under scrutiny. And land use, including rewilding schemes, are on the agenda. That said, I see that in Germany this week, the Federal Ministry of Agriculture and Food have announced that over 1 million hectares of farmland, presently under non-productive greening, will be allowed to enter production to mitigate the impact of feed supplies and increased pricing. I think everybody understands it's going to be a very tricky year ahead. Economists are even uttering the word recession. All of which, of course, makes business planning a precarious challenge. What is long-term planning these days? Weeks? Months? Years? Fortunately, as far as the dealer trade in our sector is concerned, most are family-owned. They've weathered many stormy waters in the past. They can act and react 
much quicker than larger organisations, as was proved during 2020 and 2021. The dealer trade in particular rose to the occasion with enterprise skills and the can-do attitude. They were the front-line support services to their customers. They adapted, they communicated, they introduced new skills, and they learned a great deal about trading in uncertain times. The current and future trading conditions will be more of a test because of those knowns and unknowns. What will be required is a greater-than-ever openness and cooperation between manufacturers and their dealers to ensure that their customers are provided with the products and the services for which the agriturf machinery industry is rightly proud. Perhaps, indeed, it was timely that AEA and Bagua are now operating under the same roof. Of course, it won't be straightforward, but who said that business was easy anyway? I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>